This whole process of recovery revolves around one principle, the belief of an individual that they are capable of change. If you don't believe you can change, you won't. If you don't believe you are loved, then there's no amount of love that will change that opinion. And if you don't think you can handle the pain that comes with the growth that happens in real recovery, then you will quit at the first pinprick of emotional discomfort. You gotta want the change. You gotta feed the warrior within. You gotta fight for your faith and you gotta lay down your pride for the sake of your loved ones. And when adversity comes after you or your spouse or your children, you gotta be dangerous. You gotta be the kind of person that your enemy across the battlefield looks at and knows that they don't stand a chance because they have already lost. See, recovery, it's a place for failures, but it's not a place for quitters. It doesn't matter how many times you fail, as long as you acknowledge it and learn from it and move forward. We are triers, we are doers, and we are warriors who always get back up. I used to beg God, saying, please don't quit on me. Until one day God turned it around on me and said, I've never quit on you. Don't you quit on yourself. My friends, this is the time, now, is the moment. Today is the day. Don't wait. Don't give it a second thought. You go now and repeat after me. I'm not alone. I am worthy of love and respect. I will never give up. I can change and I have the tools and the drive to win and I will win. We are in this together and we are here to help you in your journey of recovering you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Recovering You. I want to start out this episode with, uh, I don't know, doing something a little bit different. I want to tell a story. This is the story of a wife. A wife who, despite all her husband's mistakes, despite his repeated infractions <laughs> and <laughs> discrepancies, uh, despite his continuing to turn back to his addictions and his problems and making promises over and over and over again that he would change, that he would do it for her. And, and she was just, she was so supportive and she always wanted to believe him. And she did her best to just encourage him to be the best version of himself. And every time he came to her, every time this wife was approached by her husband, and there was another confession of guilt and problems and sin and mistakes being admitted to. As much as she was heartbroken, she didn't want to hurt him back. So she continued to, here's your air quotes, support her husband. And by doing so, his behavior never really changed. It got worse. <laughs> Now, hold on. How do you know this is my story? Oh, sorry. <laughs> this is not You said it was a story of a wife. Sorry. You're <laughs> you're right. <laughs> this is some wife story. This isn't about you. Or does it sound pretty familiar? No, that is mine. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, uh that being the that being the case, that is also the truth. That <laughs> it is 100% uh the story of Katie. And 
I used a very special word there because Katie, you were always so supportive of me. Even when I was breaking your heart, crumbling it to pieces, throwing it in the dirt and making these promises that I would never do those behaviors again. I would never watch pornography again. I would never go against you again. I wouldn't lie anymore. I and 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 you believed me and I started to realize I could just keep going. I could keep doing what I was always doing. And though you'd be sad for a little bit, you'd get over it and I would get my way. And I'd still be there. You would always be there. I I, I did. I don't know if I ever thought truly in my mind that like if I go to a certain line, if I cross a certain line, that she will leave me. But I, I do think that after a little while, I did learn that no matter how many times I relapsed with my pornography addiction, um, you weren't going anywhere. You were just going to continue to support me. And basically it would just mean a, a week or two of um, lack of connection and intimacy and that you'd kind of give me the cold shoulder, but I'd slowly coerce you and, and woo you back into, you know, complacency. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say loving me, but your words much better. <laughs> um <laughs> Which is so funny because oh, I perceived our relationship at that time that when we were smiling and holding hands that we were in love. And I would tell people all the time, we never fight. We love each other so much that we never even raise our voices. We never get in heavy arguments. We're just, we're perfect. We're so perfect. <laughs> and yeah, I, I hate that word. Perfect? Yeah. 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 I'm only able to get away with it when I say you're perfect for me. Yes. That's that's the only time I ever use perfection in a conversation with Katie. Now. Yeah. You used to say it all the time. I know. Even when it bugged me. <laughs> that's because I didn't care about your needs or your opinions or what bugged you. I'm aware now. So, <laughs> so jumping into this topic of how you supported me you were really kind of supporting my addiction. You weren't supporting me. You were actually, and, and support is actually the wrong word, which is what I want to get into here. Uh, we have two different sides of the coin of um, when someone's going through, when you have a, a relationship going through addiction recovery. You have, and there was another keyword that we're going to use. There is uh, recovery and there is uh, addiction. And so we're going to talk about supporting um, addiction recovery versus enabling addiction. Okay. So supporting versus enabling. So what we talked about at the beginning here, this, this whole story was all, was actually, it wasn't about being supportive. It wasn't about being an amazing wife because you were so quick to forgive. You were enabling me 100%. Yeah. And I thought I was being supportive. I thought I was being what was needed. Uh, as I worked on recognizing my enabling patterns, I had to come to terms with what enabling was. And when I was enabling him, I provided the encouragement first. I saw no differences in his action. I would hear his pain and his struggle in telling me what had happened, what he had done. I heard the pain and I wanted to fix it. I wanted it to go away so that I could have my happy husband back and that we could move forward together and hand in hand. 
I, that's what I wanted. And if I could make it happen, I was going to, because, well, I'll admit I'm a very stubborn person. And so I was going to make it happen. I was going to will him into an addiction free life. I knew I could do it. And (laughs) so he'd come to me so sad and so heartbroken appearing. I, I think I, I was. I mean, yeah, I, I I never enjoyed hurting you. I never like I never liked watching your heartbreak and having to talk to you about the mistakes I was making. So that was genuine. The pain was real, but the intention to actually change is where I just I didn't know any better. I didn't know how to change. So. And I didn't wait for change. I would give we I remember the times after you would tell me we would spend like an hour or two with me just talking, lifting you up, encouraging you, telling oh, yeah. you all the things you could do. You are strong. I see your potential. I know you can do it. And I would cheerlead you into a better mood and nothing would change. Yeah. I thought I was being supportive. I thought that was my way of helping. That I was, I was going to help you get there. <laughs> no matter what. And so I buoyed you up and I lifted you up until you were in better spirits. And as time went on, it felt like more I was dragging you up and I was tired. And because, I mean, I felt like I was doing all the work and every single time you'd come back and be like, I messed up again. I pulled back up again. I'm like, all right, we're pulling again. And I was running out of steam. I was getting tired. And yet I didn't realize that it was my actions that was enabling him to not even feel motivated to change. What reason was there to even want to change? And then D-Day happened. I don't know if you've ever talked about what D-Day is. Okay. Yeah. Disclosure day. Yep. D-Day happened and I disconnected emotionally I was so hurt and I was so tired that I did not have the strength anymore to pull him up. I remember him, you, crying beside me on the bed. Actually, I don't think you even got in the bed. You'd come in from seeing our son, getting him to sleep, and you came in crying and you sat down on the floor next to the bed, crying. And I did not have an emotional response. No. I. Which was shocking because I was beside myself. I was. And usually I respond very quickly because I want to soothe that pain. I want to ease it. I knew I could. And the talk I had had with Heavenly Father less than an hour before, I don't know exactly how long, but it was less than an hour saying, "If, if this line is crossed, I'm not. I'm not, I'm, I'm stepping back. It's not okay. He can't stay in the house. Yeah. And to have it happen so closely, I think was God's way of saying it's time. You're too tired to do this on your own. He needs to do it. And so then I was learning about how to support him. And I learned that with support, the encouragement and the the lifting up and the you did it and all all of the affirmation comes 
after the change. It's not before. He needs he needed to be the one to pull himself up. And that took time. It took building those spiritual and mental muscles to say, I have to do this myself. And me letting him. I mean, we let our kids, when they're learning how to walk, we don't hold them the whole time and say, eventually they're going to be motivated to not hold my hand anymore. You think of, you watch those little babies and as soon as you let go, the first time they sit down, like they don't, they know this is not something I can do. I've never done this. So you, you work with it. You, you work with them and you hold their hands, but eventually you don't put your hand where they can reach it. It comes out of reach and they have to push themselves. They have to learn they can do it themselves. And I feel like that's what I was learning how to do. I was learning how to step back and let him become the strong man of God. He could be that divine potential that I always told him I could see. I let him grow into it himself. Mm. And so I feel su supporting someone is not pulling them up or grabbing them and saying, we've got this. I'll take you. It's, I know you can get there and I want to see it happen. Go make it happen. Yeah. There's another really good analogy that I think really helped us out, which was um, you and you, we heard this from Maurice Harker uh, about hitching your wagon, packing your wagon, packing your wagon. Yeah. So tell, take us through this because this is something you, you kind of lived by and you actually, you, you essentially said this to me multiple times of just like, look, I, I'm packing my wagon. I'm I'm going on my my journey. You're welcome to ride next to me, but you don't get to ride in my wagon. Delve into that a little bit more for us. Well, so there's actually two analogies that I feel kind of rounded out. The first one also introduced to me by Maurice Harker was the boat. Okay. If you're in a boat and your husband is in his boat and his has holes in it and he's sinking <laughs> and he says, my dear sweet wife, come into my boat with me. Mm. Are you going to get in his boat? No. No, your boat's sinking. <laughs> so then he goes, I'm sinking. Let me into your boat. And you go, how did the holes get in your boat? Because if you put those holes in that boat, you're going to put those holes in my boat. And then we'll both be sinking. But wouldn't wouldn't a wife who truly loved her husband allow him into her boat? Allow her to drown herself? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to realize that we each need to take care of our own boats. Yeah. And that leads into the packing your wagons. With the pioneers, they had to plan ahead. They had to pack provisions because they didn't know what was coming. So they had to pack their wagons. And the more you added, the more weight there was, the more you had to essentially carry. And as parents, you also put your children in your wagon because they're, they don't have wagons of their own yet. However, as an adult, you have your own wagon. And so when you pack your wagon, you put the things you need in your life that will help you move forward. If you are doing it right, you have a husband and a wife 
traveling side by side together in their own wagons. Yeah. You don't share wagons because then the weight is excruciating. I mean, we could delve farther into like the, the tiny little details that you can compare and add to your life of what these all these little things could mean of what it means to pack your wagon. But with an addict, they don't have a wagon anymore. They've hitched a ride on yours. And they're saying, you'll just carry me to the finish line. You'll get me to where I want to go. I can behave however I want. I want to be in your wagon. I don't want to put in the effort. I don't want to carry anything. Let me in. But I, I, and I would also say in, in terms of coming from the addict's perspective, not only do we want to ride in the wagon, we also want to control it. We, we want to be the ones that when it's convenient for us, we take the reins, we steer the wagon where we think it needs to go. But then as soon as things get chaotic, as soon as, as, soon as things get difficult, we go back into the back of the wagon and you know we expect to be carried through those hard times. We go, here you go. This is your wagon. Yeah, this is your wagon. Yeah. <laughs> and oftentimes, I mean, you can think of that as as you're going in this wagon and you're on the path and you're, you're addict spouse, husband or wife comes up and says, Oh, let me drive. I can help. I'll do this for you. It's like, Oh, how sweet. And then you go, you may, might be like, Oh, now I can take a break and you leave them to it. And you come back out maybe an hour later and you're lost. There's no road. And then they go, I don't know what to do, but I'm tired. It's your turn. Yeah. And you are left trying to find the road you didn't even know you'd left because you'd left the reins and the control up to him. Or, or sorry. And, and <laughs> even, even another one onto that. And, and maybe, maybe we're diving too deep into this, into it, this analogy, but, but that's the benefit of analogies is you can pull a lot from yeah, it. A lot of personal interpretation. Personally. Cause I, w- I would also say like, you know, maybe the road is clear enough. They know what to do, but then you go take your break and you come back and they go, Look how good I did. Um, how are you going to reward me? Look, I did the dishes. Don't I deserve affection now? Look, I took care of the kids and got them out of your hair for a little bit. What do I get in return? Yeah. Look, I went to work and made money and paid the bills. What are you going to give me? How are you going to return? And and that's the selfish mindset of an addict is we we do things with an ulterior motive. We do things with an expectation of return because addicts don't do anything for free. We really don't. Like, um, I guess I, I shouldn't refer to myself in the present tense because I'm not really, you know, I'm, I'm not in my addiction anymore, but just speaking from the addict's, addict's perspective, that there's always, there's always an expectation or a currency involved with any service that we do, you know? Well, that an addiction mindset is low work, high reward. Yeah. And so why would I do any work if I don't get any reward? And what kind of work is recovery? It is the hardest work imaginable. So if a man can recover or, or woman, if a person can recover, if they can put themselves through the grueling process of personal change down to their very soul and core, that is a person that can withstand the storms of life. That is a person that can, that has planted their roots so deeply that they will not be altered by the winds that come in to try and change them. 
they are they have a foundation of strength and recovery so and and i think that's probably the biggest thing that i discovered about myself when i got into recovery that i look back and i'm i'm so proud of is i never knew i had the ability to change until i was told build hitch and bring your own wagon you're not riding in mine i had to do it for myself and that circles back to the the rest of that pack your wagons analogy is your wagon is packed you're ready to go you look down at your spouse and you say i want you to be on this journey with me you cannot be in my wagon i hope you decide to bring yours and journey with me and you start your wagon you move forward and they might stand and wave from the sunset and just and they might wait a long time because i feel like especially with a pornography addict it's i'm going to wait they'll come back mm. i can still see them they're going to come back for me they're going to see they are losing me they're going to come back for me yeah and as hard as it is to not, I mean, you can look back and be like, yep, still not moving. Turning back should not be an option. I guess I shouldn't say should. Right. <laughs> it, it isn't. If you want them to change, it is not an option. That's an absolute. Because it's not up to you. They have to find in themselves their own willingness to change. Yeah. Because we cannot change someone else. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we beg or bribe or cajole, they're not actually changing. They're working towards a reward. And once that reward's achieved, they're like, well, I don't have any more motivation. I got what I wanted. Yeah. And so it really is a complete stepping back and saying, I am going on this journey. I hope you catch up. We, we see this a lot in, in like scriptural history where people are commanded to repent they're commanded to change and in that moment you know they, they they talk about how how grieved they were in their sins how how sad and like that that there that there was this you know this desire to change and then the prophet or the brother or whoever it was that called them to repentance goes back to you know they're continuing on with their wagon those people that they called to repent stay. They stay exactly as they were. They felt that moment of remorse, but the seed of change was not planted within their own hearts. And so therefore lasting and permanent change never occurred. Um, a great example of that is in the book of Mormon, uh, Laman and Lemuel brothers and Nephi, they repented so many times. They were called to repentance so many times and over and over and over, sometimes within minutes of Literally seeing angels, they go back to, well, we're still going to kill you, brother, because we're mad at you. You know, like, we're going to beat you with sticks. We're going to hurt you. Uh, you. You know, you shamed us. You're our younger brother. You don't get to speak out against us. And their pride and everything came right back because their ultimate desire was not to change and become more like Nephi. It was, they just didn't want to be in trouble in that moment. So they or, said what they needed to say. Or dad made me come. Yeah. And, oh, I thought we were going to pick up our riches at our house. Yeah. I think you could also compare, if you think about Christ and his ministry on the earth and the miracles he performed, 
the majority of those miracles required some evidence of faith before the miracle. Oh, I love that. Um, there was a quote. Well, I guess it's not technically a quote. It's just something that um, Jared Halverson says in his podcast, Unshaken Saints, quite often is faith precedes the miracle. And that has stuck with me because faith doesn't seem like an action word, and yet it is. We build our faith, and letting it lie dormant, it does re recede. Our faith can go up and down. And so the miracles he performed, there was great evidences of faith and great evidence of action, people bringing the sick to him, people traveling for miles. Naaman, when he washed in the river seven times, he had to act. He had to bathe seven times before he was healed. Yeah. And so action has to come first. And so to be the best supporter, you need to look and ask for and expect action. And, and I think that I'm, I'm going to segue just a little bit here with the thought that crossed my mind. One of my biggest acts of faith when you asked me to change, when you hitched your wagon and you left um, and you asked me to move out and we took those action steps. One of my biggest acts of faith, and I, I even tested the waters multiple times, was how long are you going to stick around while I go through this change? Um, is there at any point like if, if I relapse again, are you, are you going to use the D word? Are you going to say divorce? And your answer, e even when I was just like, even when I was doing really well and, and I was just like, Hey, I'm doing really good. Like, are, are you still kind of leaning toward like separation? And, and you just, you never really gave an answer because what I was doing was I was probing to see how malleable you were. I was probing to see if I could manipulate you back into those old behaviors, back into accepting me for the way that I was and saying, this is good enough. When your expectation was, it's not about me feeling like you're good enough. It's about you feeling like you're good enough. It's about you meeting those expectations that you know, God wants you to uphold. And so I, I think that was, that was that act of faith that you're talking about was mine was I, I had to continue to change even with the possibility that we might still get divorced. I mean, a year and a half later, I still didn't know if our marriage was going to make it. And I wasn't purposely keeping you in the dark. No. I had no answer. I had no promises that I could give because I wasn't there. I was like, I had nothing. And... I think it, it it's important when you are faced with this kind of situation to learn and know what you yourself needs. Cameron, you needed something different than what I needed. Yeah. And a lot of spouses and a lot of addicts, they're not going to match what we needed. And it's, it's an introspective time to learn what you need to be willing to accept. Yeah. And, and you got to You got to love the journey for yourself and love who you are becoming, despite what other people, even your closest people think of you. 
despite what their opinion is of you, despite that uh, there were, so th there was one time, and I think I've told this story once before on the podcast, but I was, I was in a, in a recovery, in a recovery group with a bunch of men. And I was, because things were getting so much better with us, I had all this optimism and I was just like, look, and I, I testified to these men. I said, I promise that if you, you know, do your daily goals and if you make the improvements and if you repent and if you become better, if you stay on this path that we're being told to do, your marriage will heal. And like, the uh the mentor of the group at that time was like stop you can't promise that you don't know that because this is not the spouse's journey this is your journey you can promise that you will love yourself more you can promise that your relationship with god will improve you can promise that but you cannot promise anyone else's journey surrounding your life which is interesting because i said that earlier about the spouse you can't change them as an addict, a recovering addict, you you've you make these great strides, and then you turn back to this to the person that you were supposed to take care of and let down, and say, "Okay, now you change." Yeah, and it's like, wait, I couldn't make you change. You can't make me change. You can't make me heal faster. Just like I can't make you recover faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hurry up with your recovery. About a year into Cameron's recovery, um, and he would be asking these questions of, are we going to work? Are you still going to be there? I began asking him, are you still trying? Yeah. Because if you are still trying, I won't give up. I won't quit. I need to see that you are trying. And that doesn't mean seeing you trying doesn't get its own reward from me. I just need to see that you're trying. Yeah. I want to touch on this a little bit. So we, we've kind of focused on this uh, supporting recovery versus enabling addiction in terms of addiction recovery. But there are so many other issues that couples deal with that I, I, I want to dive into a little bit here. Um, I mean, because you have all sorts of problems that people deal with. There, there's there's grief, there's loss, there's finances, there's abuse, there's uh, past traumas. There's all sorts of stuff that people deal with within their marriage. And I, I feel like there's so many applications to this in terms of I, I'm trying to I'm trying to be delicate here, and I I don't know if I want to jump straight straight into like something really harsh uh, like abuse oh. within within a relationship. But I feel like that's just such a clear example to say that there, there are, you know, abuse happens. There's, it would be silly to deny that. And so many times the pattern we see most with couples that one of the spouses is abused is that they get up the courage to leave and then behind empty promises, they go back. And there might be a small period of like, oh, thing, things, maybe things really are getting better. And it's always short-lived. And and I hate the phrase, you know, like once an addict, always an addict. Because that that was really damaging to me. Like people would people would say that not knowing that I was a recovering addict. And I would think to myself, really? Am I no different? Have I not changed? I was given the opportunity to change. I, I, I feel like I'm a pretty different guy. And, you know, I, and I would just internalize that so deeply. And so I have 
tried really hard to look at other people's lives and what they're going through, like with things like abuse and to not think like, okay, well, once an abuser, always an abuser. If you go back to them there, you know, and, and to not, you know, maybe this time it will be different, but I think there's that asterisk on there that says, what are they doing to prove that it's different this time? Well, I have an, a question, an easy question for you to answer. Okay. How many times did you tell me you were going to change? Well, probably hundreds, like if we're being honest. And how many times did I believe you? Hundreds. There were so many times that I chose to believe the words that you had spouted so many times. Yeah. Yet why would in my head would that time be different? There's a fear and a desperation in all of us to be loved to be wanted mm. and i think personally it's how satan enables these poor behaviors addiction abuse bullying um that you think you think of the young kids at school who get picked on yeah by a friend by a friend quotes. <laughs> and they think I just have to be nicer. I just have to give them a present. I just need to help them feel good about themselves so they'll be nice again. Yeah. Not realizing that that's enabling. I think a victim of abuse, violence, trauma, the instinctual reactions that were learned during that time of trauma clicks in before they even think. And so it's a really hard thing to push past. Just like an addict has to learn how to push past that instinct to go to their addiction, yeah. a trauma survivor has to heal past the instincts of their sur of survival that they learned would get them the most peace, or the most space, whatever they were searching for to get reward. away from that fear, yeah. they would do. And so they have to unlearn those instincts and learn new, stronger instincts of self-worth. And I'm not saying that someone who responds poorly in traumatic situations is not worthy of self-worth and don't have it. I'm saying it isn't as strong as it could be. I think it's also important to know as much as, you know, we get frustrated at those that, you know, we're like, oh, we get so frustrated with those that, that go back to abusive relationships or that they go back to their addictions and stuff like that. We also need to be understanding of the fact, you know, not, not judge them for those things because again, like every single person's life is different. Everyone goes through different things and, um, you know, we all have our reasons for doing the things that we're doing. And so this goes back to our last week's conversation is how do we, you know, you, we need to be that supportive person that never fans the flames of the problems that people are going through. That is a, a peacemaker. That is someone that just encourages love and respect toward all people, um, regardless of the choices they make or the traumas that they're going through. Our job is to make sure that um, when they are around us within our circle, within our bubble, they feel loved, they feel peace, and they, they feel the, the respect that they deserve as a human being. So in kind of summing things up, there, there is, and what we've kind of talked about, there's a very fine line 
actually not a fine line. There's a very distinct line between um, supporting recovery and enabling addiction or enabling poor behaviors. The difference is, I think it's a very key word here that you love. <laughs> I love words. The, the difference is boundaries. The, the difference is what we are willing to say, I'm not okay with this line being crossed. As soon as it's crossed, I'm stepping away. I'm, I'm heading in the direction that I choose for my life. And, and we'll do an episode in the future too about um, codependency, independency, and interdependency and the difference there um, because that codependency mindset is really kind of like, I can't be happy without you. I can't be happy, not, not even without you, without your happiness. If you're sad, I have to be sad. If, you know, if you're miserable, I have to be miserable. If you're happy, I can be happy. And so we do whatever it takes to maintain that, um, that homeostasis of the relationship where, you know, we, we view that it should be. And so our, our encouragement out there, you know, is to seek out whether it's literature or talking to someone, but, but if you are someone that is struggling in a relationship that has, uh, addiction that has abuse that has um unhealthy boundaries yeah un <laughs> unhealthy boundaries or even even i mean this is great for like what katie was saying this is great for your kids if they are struggling with being bullied at school and and you don't know what to tell them on how to treat those kids that they're like oh but they're my friend i want them to be my friend you know this is a great opportunity i feel like this episode was a great gateway to lead people to just see things differently of like oh i don't have to just accept their behavior because that's who they are i can have expectations without without demanding them because that was the other thing with you you never demanded that i changed you said well and i never gave you specific guidelines there yeah. was no list of these are the things you need to do to be in my good graces because then that opposite person just starts checking boxes and then they say, okay, I've done everything on the list. Now I get what I deserve. I get back into the house. I get back into the relationship. I get you back in my life. And so, yeah, and it, which I think was the most effective way and was awesome that you did that. And I think it turned out really well for us that I, I got to, I got to have an open ceiling of potential toward where I could go. And I didn't limit myself by this is what I have to do to get back into my wife's good graces. You sure didn't like it at the time. No. <laughs> but can I also point out that is in regards to parenting, this can be, this can be applied in so many situations with kids because of course they are learning. And when you give kids boundaries, you have to look at their pushing on those boundaries and, going over those boundaries as they're checking to see where they are. Where are those boundaries? Where is my safety net? Like when a kid pushes on a boundary, they want to know it's there. It's not, I don't want the boundary there. They want to know where it is. Yeah. And so they will push, but once they realize and figure out, okay, these are the boundaries. Generally they stop pushing until they reach another growth mark yeah. of like, um, going into preteens and then teenager, they, they hit stages where they need different boundaries, new boundaries. So they're retesting again. And that's usually when the parents are, you know, pulling their hair out going, what on earth? You were such a sweet child. What happened? <laughs> um, <laughs> Devil child. <laughs> 
as a parent, we have to be so careful that we are not in enabling our children's poor decisions or poor behaviors and instead supporting them in becoming the person they want to be yeah. and just don't know how to get there. Watering the values and the and the good choices and allowing those to grow while pointing out and not weeding their own garden. Yeah. Them. Let them do that. Exactly. They have to do the work. Got they gotta pull their own weeds. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for uh another amazing conversation. Uh I, I hope that as all of you that listen to this, as you're listening to it, I hope that you're able to internalize things that you're able to flip them around and look at them through your own life that this isn't just a, a fun and unique story for you but this is something that you can say okay i'm seeing areas where i can do better i'm, I'm seeing i'm seeing i'm also thinking of people where i want to share these thoughts that i have with them not that i want to fix them um, but that there's there's value in these conversations and i hope there is for you i really appreciate we really appreciate the awesome support that we're, that we're getting. Um, again, if you have any questions, if you have a story you feel you need to tell, if whatever, whatever you might need, please feel free to reach out to us. All the info is um, on the link to this podcast, but the email, the easiest way to get a hold of us is through the email, recoveru2 at gmail.com. And that's the number two. All right. Well, that's going to be it for this week. We look forward to talking to you guys again next week. And yeah. Signing off. If you liked what you heard today, please don't forget to take just a few seconds to rate us and share this episode with someone you think it may benefit. If you have any questions for Katie or myself, feel free to reach out to us at recoveru2 at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.